Well, good afternoon. It's always a privilege to be able to stand before you behind this sacred desk to be able to preach life unto you. Life that comes from the Word of God. Just want to say thank you for all of our visitors who are with us. We're so glad that the Lord have led you this way. We hope that something would be said to encourage you. Are you ready to receive the Word? Amen. Amen? Scripture says, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen? Thank God for his word. Some of you here today are new to the faith, and you are already enjoying many of the many benefits of being part of a God-centered church uh, where Christ is sovereign over all. Well, the Christian, or the Christian, should I say, at the time of this letter, we'll be looking at Colossians, so you can find your place there, Colossians chapter 2. And while you're finding your place there, I just want to say a little bit uh, about what's have al- what have already gone on. So we're at a place where Christians, at the time of this letter, whom Paul wrote to, were also new, um, or they were considered a new work of God, if you would. In other words, it was clear that God was at work amongst them, And so, because God is at work amongst them, you can imagine some of the glorious things that they had the opportunity to enjoy. And so, can you imagine, if you would, with me, how they might have felt at that time, knowing that they were finally set free from the bondage of sin once and for all? You imagine that feeling when you first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you became a believer and you begin to know Christ personally as your Lord and Savior. They also were looking forward to the day when they shall be with Christ, being with Christ, sharing in his glory in heaven with the Father. We can relate, amen? Are you looking forward to that day where you're going to be with Christ forever? And you have permission. My brother have already given you permission. It's okay to say amen. (laughs) Uh, When you hear the truth or you hear something that you agree with, you can Say your agreements by saying amen. Amen? Amen. Meanwhile, Paul, while he was in prison, took every opportunity to minister to this church whom he never saw. However, he thought that they could use some encouragement. Some of you today 
might need a word of encouragement. The reality is that we all need encouragement. Amen? Sometimes we receive encouragement even when we thought we didn't need it. Right? Then after receiving it with thankful hearts, we become glad that we were encouraged. And sometimes that can be um, contagious, if you would. We can find ourselves not only receiving encouragement, but we can find ourselves offering it to others as well. Encouragement is a ministry that Paul learned from Christ. He might have even learned from uh, Brother Barnabas, who also was an encourager. And here it is, Paul is encouraging these churches. And so now let's give our attention to the text to see what Paul says to these two churches. Colossians 2, beginning at verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let us now pray and ask God's help. Our Lord and our God, oh, how we thank you for your word. We know that your word is powerful. We pray that your word will go forth convicting our hearts, changing our minds, that we might more and more become obedient to your word, that we might, Lord God, live in a way that pleases you and honors you and turn from ways that do not. We pray, Lord, that you would even grant salvation to the one who do not know you, that today might be the day of salvation. And Lord, may your word helps, help us to recall the things of God so that we might live by them. Lord, we ask all of these prayers in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I've entitled this sermon, If We Had Only Known, Then What? Um, I, I try to think about the things that we need to know as a church. And by knowing those things, what, what burdens we will have by knowing the word of God? What changes would we make by applying the word of God? And in our text, Paul is wanting these churches to know something. Colossians chapter 2 is about knowing. It's about knowing and getting to the fullness of God. When we know what to do, then we can plan to carry out what we know through faith and through acts of obedience. We're going to talk more about that on next time. We're going to talk about the particulars about this idea of knowing the fullness of God, or having a knowledge, right? We're going to tap into that just a little bit this time. But we're going to go deeper next time. The Lord Jesus, as you know, wishes the best success for all churches that is founded upon the apostles' doctrine. But what does it mean? The answer is given to us through his word by the power of his spirit, his authorized agent, the apostle Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, was sent out and commissioned by the Lord to speak on his behalf. And so what we have before us is the word of God that is used for our life, for the building blocks as to how we are to conduct our lives. So Paul expressed what the church of Christ ought to know in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. In order for the churches to be mature in their faith and to be true disciples of Christ. First, that the church be encouraged through love, verses 1 and 2a. Second, that the church benefit by seeking to understand the knowledge of God in Christ, verses 2b and 3. Third, that the church guard against theological deception by remaining firm in the faith, verses 4 and 5. Fourth, that the church continue to grow in faith and testify to the truth of Christ. Verses 6 and 7a. And lastly, fifth reason, that the church remain loyal to the teachings and increase, increase in giving thanks to God. Verses 7b. Don't worry if you didn't get uh, a chance to to write all of those down, I'll be giving you my points as we uh, move along the text, if you would. So let's begin. Point number one, encourage one another through love. Paul opens this letter, uh, he opens a part of this letter, letting his listeners know of the struggles he's been having. 
Now, his struggles could have been internal or they could have been external in this case. In any case, Paul, Paul's struggle was real and it included encounters and hostilities both inwardly and outwardly. In verses 1 through 5, he states specifically what his concerns are for these churches. But let's learn from the apostle how, as a church, we can express our concerns as he did and see how our hearts ought to feel for the church. He states in verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul wants them to know something. Here Paul expresses his difficult circumstance as not only a struggle, but a great struggle. He is describing for his readers a point in his life and ministry as agony. This is similar to those who agonize at the Olympic Games when they are trying or in pursuit of a crown. We see the stresses that the runner has on their faces as they run through the tape. It's a type of struggling and agonizing. And Paul is saying, I've struggled for you for the sake of the gospel and going forth. Colossae, I'm praying for you. Paul could relate because he also had been agonizing and fighting for these Christians with all of his might. And the amazing thing is that he had never personally, he never personally met them face to face. Paul knew nothing about them individually. He didn't know what they looked like. Yet he agonized on their behalf. Some of you may be asking, why pray for people we don't even know? I believe um, when we pray for others, we're saying that we're in agreement with them. Right? We're saying that we can understand, we know what it means to struggle in life as a Christian. Here, Paul sees himself as an instrument chosen by God to take the gospel to all who would listen. We saw this kind of faith exercised in the life of William Carey who centuries ago made a leather map so that he can pray for the world. He stitched out a map because he was burdened to pray for the world. Well, he didn't stop there. He became the founder of modern-day missions in India. Apostle Paul saw the Colossian Christians as brothers in Christ, but he had become, in a sense, their spiritual father through Epaphras, one of their own. In many cases, suffering is a condition of serving others. 
One of the reasons why Christians don't serve and, and don't pray for one another is because it's a hard thing at times. It really takes effort. It takes setting aside. It, it takes sacrifice. It means putting away my own desires that I might put others ahead of me. And so, sometimes putting others and serving others is hard. But this can only happen when we lose the teachings behind the suffering. So, uh, Paul regularly kept the joy of suffering before him. So the question is, how many of us keep the joy of suffering before us as we serve? All right? Notice what Paul states in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice, just go back up one chapter. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh, I am, look now, filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. You see that? This, this is how Christians ought to think in times of suffering for the church. Today there's easy, easy believism. Wanting things to be easy. Don't, don't want things to be hard and difficult. If it is, I'm gone. I'm leaving. You must serve me. Right? We see this all the time. People, uh, or it's because people don't want their lives to be frustrated with inconveniences. So in many cases, on the one hand, people leave their churches seeking another one who will appease their fleshly appetites. On the other hand, it states in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, this is how we ought to be. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So, Sometimes it hurts to care for others. Sometimes people don't want to be served, and they will even turn down your help because it's not packaged in the way that they want it. But God has called us to serve. Sometimes we might even get hurt doing church work. As, as ministers of Christ, I want to say it like this. We going to get hurt. That's down south. We talk like that. Yeah, we going to get hurt. Right? The, the, the idea is that doing ministry, God has called us to follow him. Right? And the scripture teaches us that despising the shame. 
despising uh, the, the difficulty and the pain on his way to a cross, he was obedient. And we are called to, to do the same. We're going to have sleepless nights because we know of others in Christ that are hurting. And what are we, what are we doing? We are empathizing with them. In the case with Paul and the Colossians, though he did not know them, he wrestled in prayer on their behalf. So you see, we don't have to know someone to pray for them. We don't have to know about their family, their personality, and how they grew up. No, we just have to be willing to pray for all of those that are in Christ. Be willing to do so as the opportunities arise. In other words, we ought to constantly be in prayer. Sometimes we minimize the work of God because we don't pray enough. How much have we missed because we did not pray? How many opportunities? How many blessings? But the Lord wanted to pour out on us a blessing that we did not have room to receive it. But, but he's waiting for us to call upon him to show our trust and obedience in him. You ever wonder about that? We know from scriptures that sometimes God only answers prayer, or let me put it like this. We know that sometimes God only helps us through prayer, right? Paul, in describing about how Christians must put on the full armor of God, says this in Ephesians 6.18 about prayer. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Right? May the Lord stir us up to have a passion for prayer and to even say to one another, I was thinking about you last night, and so I prayed for you. Uh, sense that maybe something was going on. You came across my mind. I was thinking of you. Just want you to know that I'm praying for you. Right? Can you imagine if that would take off in this church? What kind of things we can accomplish? Not because we are dependent upon ourselves, but, but, but we have come before the throne of grace to our God who is rich in mercy, who owns everything. We've come to him and we've placed it all in his hands as servants of God. May the Lord stir us. That, that's what Paul was doing. This man was in prison, right? He's in prison thinking about others, not himself, about wanting to get out, but others who may be having it hard and difficult. He have his mind made up that he's willing to die for Christ. So 
may the Lord stir us up. But why do you think Paul did this? Paul states his purpose in 2a. He says that their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love. When Christians are united together in brotherly love, we are encouraged and we have understanding, understanding that ties our hearts and our minds together. F.F. Bruce comments, And I quote, Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. In other words, we can't do anything apart from love. It has to be founded upon love. If it's not, it's useless. God would just toss it out. Right? It's out of love. So, in other words, being smart or merely being intellectual will not suffice. Those things are good in and of themselves, but they fall short of fully understanding the mystery of Christ. Comprehending the things of God comes through the love that Christians have for one another. And so why is this necessary? It's necessary because... They too abide in Christ and possess the Spirit of God. That's why we want to love one another. Because you have Christ living in you, and you have Christ living in you, and I have Christ living in me. There's no way we can be divided with Christ being in us. No way. Now, we can sin, and we need to confess our sins and repent of them, but there's no way that we can say we are in Christ and continue to buck against, another, uh, buck against one another. It can't happen. So it is necessary for us to be able to come together in brotherly love. What happens is this. When Christians get together united in love, we complement one another. You see how that works? Because of the love of Christ that is dwelling in us, we having the same spirit is able to complement one another. We don't have all the same gifts and same abilities and no one is over another one. No, we stand hand in hand, plow to plow, pushing together for the sake of Christ. All for his glory. Right? And so that's what we're saying when we love one another. So merely having knowledge will not lead us to fully grasping the mystery of Christ. Our knowledge must be escorted with love. Love must be hand in hand with the knowledge of God. Paul continues announcing his concern and purpose in verse 2b and 3. This leads us to point number two to the church. Seek to understand the knowledge of God in Christ. In this section, Paul states that his struggle is for this reason. He's going to state it. So that these Christians would, see it there, reach all the riches of full assurance 
of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is what? Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In these verses, Paul took a shot at the Gnostic heretics of his day because they're claiming to know things, right? They're claiming that they know the way to knowledge and wisdom. And Paul say, uh-uh-uh, uh-uh-uh, it's, it's, it's right here, right? Full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see? So, so uh, in contrary to their belief, Paul recognized that Christ and Christ alone is the only treasure of knowledge and wisdom. All of it is found in him, and there's no other. There's no other. All of the riches of his full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God, God's mystery is found in no other but Jesus Christ. The only mystery is Christ. He is the only way where man can have life with God. All the wisdom and knowledge they need can be found in him. There's no need to look anywhere else. One writer puts it like this. When we love him and love the scriptures and love the church so that we are united in love with each other, the mystery unfolds and we are in touch with all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It can be so now if we know Christ. You see the connection there? And if that's not enough, Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, Abide in me, and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But listen to the warning in verse 6. To those who disbelieve, it says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Speaking of judgment and hell. This is what we're giving ourselves to if we don't know Christ. If we're not, because there's only two ways. Right? There's only two roads in Christ and all the other stuff. Right? Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Right? There's no way to the Father except through me. This is what the Lord has said about himself. There's no other way. So, we can either listen to the world or we can listen to Christ. For he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. 
As the Father has loved me, so I love you. He says, abide in my love. Who don't want that? He says, abide in his love. The creator of the universe says, abide in his love. Only a fool could turn down that deal. So who do you think, or what do you think, shall I say, is the few that motivated Paul to say what he previously said? It was his concern. We, we, we give warnings to people when we are concerned about them. Right? Paul is concerned for this church because of the false teachers who had the ability to lead them astray. So next point, number three to the church, is guard against theological deception by remaining firm in the faith. Listen again to verses four and five to see what lies behind Paul's concern. Listen to it, what it says. He states, I say this, so all that you've said, right? We come to this point. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So when Christians are not knitted together by love, there's disunity. There's division, and for this reason, Christians won't enjoy the full benefits of knowing Christ. So this is a warning to us to be careful in how we step, right? So in other words, if Christ be the rock, we want to make sure that our footing is firm in Christ, right? We want to be careful with our footing, with our steps, to make sure that we are doing all things for the glory of God. Amen? So here, Paul urges his readers to avoid false teachers at every cost. We, we see it again. Evidence is given to us in 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 6, where Paul states to his protege, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord, Jesus Christ. You see that dividing line right there? Christ is the one that, he's the one person that divides it all. But goes on to say, if anyone, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord, Jesus Christ, and the teaching, right? That's important too. And the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
As a church, we must beware of those who seek to cheat us. That's what they're doing. They're cheating us from the joy that we can have when they're telling us that there's something other than Christ that would fulfill us. They're telling us that it doesn't, it's kind of like the same cunning technique as the serpent. I got it. We just don't want you to be like them. Girl, eat the fruit. Give Adam some too. You guys will be, I'm telling you, you're going you're to love it. It's going to be great. It's juicy. You're going to love it. This, this is the kinds of things that the world places in front of us and say, take and eat. Have your fill. Right? But, but Paul is reminding them to not allow the world to cheat them out of what God has promised to his bride, his church. Paul had, as we said, have never laid eyes on this church, but notice how he emphasized his presence with him. With them. He identified with them as brothers and sisters in Christ through the Spirit of God. Paul had a passion for this church because the Spirit of God had united them together in Christ. He was passionate for this church because of the love of Christ at work in them all. It was as if Paul says, I, I see you. I see how the Lord is working down there. I'm praying for you. Listen again um, to verse 5. Paul states, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul is excited. He's a, a man in prison. But he's excited about sharing in the ministry of those who are a part of the church of God. Point number four to the church, continue to grow in faith and testify to the truth of Christ. Verse six says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so do what? Walk in him. Walk in him. What does this mean? So walk in him. It cannot mean that we can just accept Jesus and we're all good. Right? No, we must not only accept him, but we must receive him. Right? People will accept many things, but they don't necessarily receive it. And here we are being commanded to not only accept Christ. The Muslim will accept that Christ is a good man. But they ain't receiving Christ as Lord and as Savior. Again, Christ is the dividing line. And therefore, we must receive him as Lord and as Savior. Billy Graham says in the Annals of America, and I quote, No man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ, and may have had emotional religious experience. 
However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, as Savior, and as Master, unquote. Thomas Brooks states that conversion looks like this. And this accepting is principally, if not only the act of your will, so that if you are sincerely and cordially willing to have Christ upon his own terms, upon gospel terms, that is, to save you and rule you, to redeem you and reign over you, then you are a believer. Your sincere willingness to believe is your faith. And this gift brings you within the compass of the promise of eternal happiness and blessedness, unquote. So my question is, do you know him? Do you know the Lord Jesus? This is serious. Think about it. Do you know him? Have you received Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? Do you believe that he died for your sins and was buried and rose again from the grave with all power and is seated at the right hand of God? There's no other way to God. Christ is your only hope. Believe today. Be saved from your sins by having faith in Jesus Christ the Savior of the world. Now, the other side of that is this. If you deny this offer and die in your sins, you're destined for the judgment and hell throughout all eternity. Turn today. Repent of your sins. Receive Christ through faith. Notice I didn't say do something. Right? I said believe something. Right? I'm not asking you to, to, to read the Bible so many times a day and uh, turn this way or that way, make a circle, whatever. I'm not asking you to behave in, in no other way. The gospel does that. God does that. When you come to know him as Lord and Savior, he makes the changes. All we have to do is believe the message. Believe his word. And be saved today. Do you know him? And after we are saved, Paul reminds us that we must continue. We must continue. Verse 7 states that we ought to continue by being rooted and built up in him. Him being Christ. And established in the faith. To be rooted in Christ means to go deep into God through faith. God has given us, if we are saved, he's given us all a measure of faith. We're to, we're to exercise our faith in Christ. And so we have the privilege of allowing God and the seeds of the gospel that have been planted in us. It allows us to go deep into God. So as Christians, we have the obligation to not only go deep, but to go wide, spreading our roots like the trees in the earth. You ever seen a tree uprooted? 
It just seems like the roots go on and on and on. I've seen many a times people just give up, and they got a, a, a big old tree in their yard because it'll be so expensive to go and try to reach and find those roots because they go so deep. So God is, is reminding us that we, we ought to go deep, rooted, built up into Christ. And so, how have you been spreading yourself? On what have you been spreading yourself? Is it Christ? Is it the rock? Or are we building on another foundation as in opposition to God? Our foundation must be Christ. Therefore, be like the vine and wrap yourselves around everything having to do with the mystery of God in Christ. Lastly, point number five to the church, remain loyal to the teachings and increase in giving thanks to God. In 7b and c, Paul states that they ought to continue just as they were taught. Right? So it's not about you're doing your own thing, right? We are taking what the apostles left behind, and we continue to build upon that foundation. God have given the church the apostles, and they have laid the foundation, and Christ is the cornerstone. We are building upon that foundation that is already laid. We can't step outside of that and begin building on something other than Christ. So Paul reminds them, just as you were taught, continue building. And then he says, abound in thanksgiving. You know what that means? That means that you've been given permission to brag on God. That's what we're doing. Yeah, he did it. He did it. Yep, yep, he did it. God did it. I don't care who hit me either, right? That's how we feel when we're fans of our teams. We don't care who hears us. Yep, yep, Lakers, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Sorry about that. But my point is, is that we're to give thanks, right? That's the whole idea. When we say thanks, we're saying adoration, praise. Glory, right? You deserve it, Lord. Adoration, praise, glory. Adoration, in other words, we're pouring out God so that we can bless him. He blessed us. We bless him by praising him. Whatever, I don't want to write one right. I want to say this. One writer states it like this. It's entitled, whatever a soul can desire is found in Christ. And it said, cast your eyes among all created beings. Survey the universe. Observe strength in one, beauty in a second, faithfulness in a third, wisdom in a fourth. But you shall find none excelling in them all as Christ does. Bread has one quality, water another, clothing another, medicine another, but none 
has all itself as Christ has. He is bread to the hungry, uh, water to the thirsty, a garment to the naked, healing to the wounded, and whatever soul can desire can be found in him, unquote. So, when we walk with God, it causes us to have a gratitude, a thanks. The next song we're about to sing, about to hear, reminds us of the joy and the hope we have in Christ together. It states, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart, then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God, how great thou art. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. As we leave here, may your word continue to edify us and build us up and help us to establish our roots deep into Christ. Help us to grow in faith and in the knowledge of this mystery. We thank you that all that we need is found in him, Christ, the Savior of the world. Lord, help us that we may not be hearers only, but doers of your word. We ask all these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.